In this podcast, Dr. Michael Kaplan, Foots Consulting Psychiatrist, talks with fifth grade parents about the joys and challenges of adolescence. And one thing that Beth just said that I wanted to pick up on is the words that we use for our kids really matter. Um, so when you were saying before, Beth, about I was bad at math, we know more and more studies are coming out that the words we use with kids matter. One study that I often think about is in, in early education and especially in preschools, when teachers, they've done studies that looked at if teachers uh, uh, use the words boys and girls, let's line up, or boys and girls, um, when they use words like boys and girls, classes tend to genderize much more when teachers use words like friends or gender neutral terms. And so it's interesting, you think just like little things like the words we use may not matter, but they find in those classrooms that boys and girls will play much more genderized, have much more genderized play, just by using the word boys and girls. So if you think about, I'm not good at math, and I thought of Beth about the, I'm sure the art teachers would all, they cringe at the, I'm not good at art. Like there are things we're not good at, and then those, we find that kids like, um, sort of um, lower themselves to those standards. Um, so I think that even if we weren't so great at math, I think we um, recapitulate those kinds of things in our children. Um, and so it becomes okay to be bad at math or that we were bad at math. Uh, I, th I think that it just, again, just I wanted to pick up on that, Beth, because I think that's uh, really important. So, so this talk, I don't know what we titled it this time, Beth, but I'd like joys, to... Joys and challenges. Okay. I like to call it, Mom, You Just Don't Understand. <laughs> um, or Dad, You Just Don't Understand. Um, and so what I want to talk about is um, what to expect from fifth graders, um, what sort of is going on inside of their minds, how they process information, how they feel about themselves, um, because they're, they're about to make a big leap, you know, this sort of early adolescence. And I also want to tell you not to be scared of adolescence. Um, those of, many of you may have had these, may be the youngest of one or two, they may be your oldest. Um, as a veteran um, parent of kids who have made it through all those phases, I have a 19-year-old and a 23-year-old, um, so almost done with actually teenagerhood. Um, if anything, again, in this line of I'm not good at art or math, like if you think positively, I think there's a lot to look forward to. As, as think as you can imagine, as you look back on your parenting, they get much more interesting as they get older. Of course, they're challenges, but I think if one thing that drives me crazy is hearing parents say, oh, they're about to be a teenager. Oh, my teenager. Oh, you know, they're acting like a teenager at five. Like that's such a, like an easy, facile thing that people say. But I think it wears on kids, right? They're listening. They're listening to us when we say, oh, they're almost a... Actually, there's a lot about teenagerhood that's amazing. Um, there's a lot that, like you walk around the middle school here, um, and you see all the great things they're doing. You go to high schools. Now, of course, there are challenges. Not that adolescence is going to be easy. I'm not trying to make light of adolescence. But I think, again, the words we use around them um, I think are really important. So, so what, back to fifth grade. Um, so one way I think about parenting is it's, it's an exercise in anxiety management, right? Um, we're always worried about our kids. I'll raise my hand, I'm always worried about my, even my 23-year-old, um, still worried about her. Um, but it's an, it's, it's, it's what we have to sort of manage is our own anxieties. Um, and we have to separate our anxieties from their anxieties. And I think understanding what's going on at the level that they're at can help us with our own anxiety. And I think it's hard for us to, at times to separate our own anxiety. Like when you go to meet with Beth about the ERBs, that's an anxiety-provoking thing. You're gonna, first time she said, you're gonna see information about your kid, standardized testing. Like, you know, I remember those days getting those things and looking at those bars and where your kid was and, um, and having those kinds of meetings myself. Um, but remember, our kids may not be as worried about that, and that may not be on their minds. You know, their minds are in a very different place. So our dilemma is to figure out what's happening at what time with them, uh, and, it's not, and it's not easy, because so much is changing. You know, they've just been through a period of, 
you know, kind of more stable development. They're out of, you know, pre-K and kindergarten, like first through fifth grade is sort of they're solidifying, they're stabilizing. Things are, are kind of um, much more predictable and, and they're about to go into changes. The things about fifth graders is they're at the beginning of a bell-shaped curve um, and there's like such variation. You know, there's a fifth grader who looks like they're 15 and there's a fifth grader who looks like they're in first grade. Um, their bodies are starting to mature and the differences are all over the maps. Um, there's a lot of awkwardness and embarrassment at this age. Um, some kids are focused on it and other kids are oblivious, right? There's the kids who are like hyper-focused on what's going on and there are other kids who have like no idea and no clue. That's, to, again, to give you an, uh, the sense of, right, you're, you're, some, you're, you're uh, relating to that, I can tell. That's also is that there's such variation, there's no way to describe like a typical fifth grader, right? I'm sure if you, we had the fifth grade teachers in here, they would say they would agree. Um, but some things uh, are, are standard and, and, and some things are, are more predictable. Um, friendships can solidify and sometimes they can turn into cliques. Uh, kids start to discriminate between themselves. You know, they're, they're usually a big gamush beforehand, but really in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, like who's smart and who's pretty and who's the athlete and who's the musician. And they start to develop these sort of sense of themselves, who's popular, uh, who's not, who has power. Um, and so they start to make these fine based distinctions and discriminations between themselves and within themselves. Um, and so with that comes a lot of concerns um, about fitting in, right? So fitting in is a big thing that may start, you may start to see in your fifth graders. Um, and then that, that along with fitting in comes having the right thing, like the right clothes, the right sneakers, the right hair, the right this, the right that, um, what, what they have. And the big question is where do I fit in and how do I fit in? Um, and kids start the process of being sensitive to anything that makes them stand out, right? Because that whole idea is to, their anxiety is about will I fit in? And so they therefore don't want to stand out. And so, so you know, all of a sudden they may have dressed in one way and all of a sudden they want a whole new way of dressing. They may, they may start to change in terms of what their preferences are. And that can be pretty um, you know, startling and surprising uh, for us as, as parents. Uh, a middle school, uh, not Beth, another middle school head once said to me that uh, middle school is all about a contest that they can't win. <laughs> um, and that they're um, always comparing themselves and coming up short. Um, and so that's a, sort of a burden that you may remember yourself from being in, in middle school, is that you're always sort of comparing yourself. And so it's an exercise between feeling comfortable and feeling uncomfortable. They're trying to sort, sort things out. Um, and so when I think about middle school, I think about four things um, that are kind of four principles. Uh, one is, again, changes to their bodies inside and out. Uh, one is um, uh, a sense of moodiness that's normal, right? So they're going to start to have their mood regulation is going to start to change. Um, they're going to start to become more independent from you as parents. So they're going to start to want to do things on their own. I don't need you. You don't need to do that for me anymore. But at the same time, they're very dependent, right? So the thing is, there's an independence-dependence uh, uh, continuum. And also, but the key thing about adolescence, I find, is that a focus outside the family. They're going to start to look to others for guidance as opposed to mom and dad. You stop becoming so omnipotent and omniscient and knowing you know, everything about them and that their world outside starts to matter. And that's all normal. They're going to be looking to their friends. They're going to look to their peers. They're going to be looking to TV, to media. We'll talk about social media. Uh, of course, that always comes up. Um, but they're going to start to look for other sources of influence. Um, and you're going to matter a little bit less, um, which, is, which is sort of one of the sad things that happens with adolescents. Um, but you're going to learn a lot from them in the process. So what's happened? Why are all these changes happening? And what's going on? So we've, um, in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a surge in sort of brain development. 
and understanding sort of what's going on beneath the surface. And what we know about brain development is that this is a big shift in brain development that starts around age 10. So prior to age 10, um, there's, a, uh, there's a balance in brain development where we're basically born with a full complement of neurons. So we have like 100 billion neurons, give or take, and that is relatively stable. What happens with growth and development is there's a proliferation of connections between those neurons. And so in the first five years, there's a surge of connections. At the same time, our brain is very economical and doesn't, knows what connections it needs to make. Um, and so it starts the process of pruning away connections that are superfluous so that our brain can become more efficient. And so the rate of connections is, exceeds the rate of pruning up until about age six or seven. And by the time we're talking about the children in fifth grade, they're starting to prune away all those parts of their brain development that aren't necessary. Well, what does that mean on a practical level? What it means for um, a, a child in fifth grade is their brain becomes much more efficient. It becomes more effective much more goal-directed. Um, they can do things like planning. They can process information better. Um, the brain becomes much, much, um, works much more quickly. The reason why is myelin is being laid down over all the neurons. And so unlike the first grader or kindergartner who, you know, I, the example I like to think about is walking to school. Walking to school with a kindergartner can take like an hour, and walking to school with a fifth grader can be like 10 minutes, right? They're like, I'm getting to school, I want to see my friends, and the fifth grade, you know, the kindergartner's picking up the stick and the pebble, and you know, oh, look at that thing, mommy, and like just even the walk up the path, they're like going like this, like, you know, they don't go in a straight line. What happens for fifth graders is they start to, the, the, the pathways get laid down more effectively, and they're much more goal-directed. And it's a great advance, and it also enables them to do things like take an ERB. Beth, imagine giving ERB to a kindergartner. You know, <laughs> that, that could never happen. Um, um, so it makes them very aware of what's going on. They can draw many more connections than they can. The kinds of curriculum that you see them doing in fifth grade, like look at what they were doing compared to first grade, then imagine what they'll be doing in ninth grade four years from now. Um, and that's all based on where their brain is. But because they can start to make connection, it also makes them more acutely aware and sometimes painfully aware of how, like what differences there are you know, between them and their friends. It gets back to the idea of they're starting to make these distinctions between people because of their brain development. The other thing that they can do um, is that they can also make distinction about what we're capable of and not capable of. You know, they can start to catch us in ways in which you may be, you know, like we're saying one thing and doing another thing. Uh, we can't really get away with that um, anymore. Um, um, and so, um, so that becomes something that happens within in our relationships, and they actually start to keep us uh, being a little bit more honest than we were uh, before they got to this age. The other thing that we know about this um, uh, in terms of brain development is how important peers are. So they've done studies in adolescents, so a few years older than your children, which show that um, they do fMRI studies that look at the impact of, of um, peer rejection, um, and parental loss and kind of real traumatic events. And what they found is that for adolescents, uh, unlike with adults, there's a big difference, was that for adolescents, peer rejection almost has the same impact on what parts of your brain light up as if you know, you'd had a major trauma in your life. And so when you hear at home that they're acutely affected by something that happens within their friendship group, um, it's, it's sometimes hard to be empathic with them. Um, but I think it's important to know that actually within their brain, within their uh, development, they're making, th that, that actually is an aspect that's incredibly intense for them. Um, and so that's also accompanied by a surge in emotionality that impacts their self-esteem. And again, in terms of where their self-esteem comes from, it's coming a lot less from, the, from you at home. So when you put that picture up in kindergarten on the refrigerator um, and you ooh and odd about, 
at that point, there's a real connection that they feel really good. Like we blow up their self-esteem. And, and not that you still don't blow up their self-esteem in fifth grade, but it starts to come from other places. You'll start to hear things like, oh, you just say that because you're my dad. Um, right? Like, so, so you start to talk to them, and they will um, maybe not believe it as much. Um, so, um, uh, so I want to talk about, um, so, so back to the brain for a moment. Um, so the brain development, as I've been talking about, starts to change at this age, but it's still shaky. Um, and as they're moving out of the home, you may start to get the mis this misconception they don't need you anymore. And so they'll start to sort of put up this front and put up this tough guy or tough girl thing that I don't need you anymore. But they need you desperately. I mean, they'll need you all through high school, even though they may not show you that. Um, and I think it's important to always try and remember that we don't take what they say at face value. And this kind of thing starts at fifth grade. Um, that even though they may look like they're independent, look like they want to spend no time with you, they want to go to their room and shut the door, they want to put on their headphones and not listen to you, um, we'll get to that in a minute as well, you're still important. I'm here to tell you, you're still important and they still need you. Don't take everything at face value um, from your early adolescent. Um, so, um, but the other thing that these talks are often, um, I feel at risk for, is that there's a right way and a wrong way. I may have said this for those of you who came to the kindergarten, What's really great about development and parenting and relationships is that we get a lot of chances to screw up and we have a lot of chances to make it right. That there's no right way to do it um, uh, and that, that, that they'll give it to you over and over. I'm always telling parents in my practice that the same thing's going to happen over and over again. You have a lot of chances um, uh, to, to, to make up for things that you might have gotten wrong. One topic that often comes up at this age is sort of gender um, and what's going on with gender. Um, boys versus girls. Um, I tend to think that we make more of differences between gender than similarities. Um, and so I think that um, we're often talking about boys and girls as different beasts. And even though they may look like different beasts and they may act in different ways, there are many more ways in which they overlap. Um, and especially at, at, at this age. Um, so for example, like power and aggression. We often think about boys as being into power and aggression. But we also know that girls are into power and aggression. But it just happens in different ways. Sometimes there's little proto-dating. It's not dating. <laughs> it's really not dating. It's not really dating till high school. Um, and you don't have to let them go on dates in fifth grade and sixth grade and seventh grade. Like, they don't really have to go on dates. Um, so, if, so, again, back to taking things at face value, if they come home and say something like, oh, like, Sarah and Josh are dating, I would say to them, what is dating? <laughs> like, what does that mean? You know, often, you know, we, we put a high value, you know, there was a question about grouping for math. Um, I think that we put a high value in this community on verbal skills, right? We're very, we want to have early readers, we want them to understand, and, and their vocabularies are so prodigious at a place like foot school, which is wonderful. Um, and we want to promote that part of their learning and development and their, their way of comprehending and interacting, interfacing with the world. But it doesn't mean that they know exactly what they're talking about. So they may have very fancy vocabularies, but they may not. So I want to encourage you, if they come home and say something that you, you wanted to say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, it's okay to say that. So, um, and you can ask them what it means to date. Um, it is not normal to be dating, and um, you you don't have to um, to allow that kind of thing. Um, so, <laughs> there's plenty of time for that. Um, I always feel like so in terms of development. So I'll date myself. I was always so happy that the Jonas Brothers existed, um, and maybe um, who was that? Uh, One Direction. Like, so crushes on bands are a great way. So you think about development, like when does that sort of thing happen? It's like early adolescence to adolescence. And for me, it's a displacement of, so they're obviously becoming sexual beings. They're going through puberty, they're having sexual interests and desires, and they're having these kinds of thoughts. But it's really good to have a crush on, who's that guy from One Direction? 
Um, Harry. Harry Smith? Or Harry. <laughs> <laughs> she still has a crush on Harry. No. Uh, uh, I'm niece, I'm niece. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I was like, when other parents were like, oh my God, my kids are so whatever about the Jonas Brothers. And I was like, no, go Jonas. Like, we have a need for the Jonas Brothers um, for, the, our, you know, for, for our you know, children to have crushes on that. And, and if you think about our lives, and when we were in that age group, there were, there's always someone who fills that niche. There's a niche, and I would argue that's a biological sort of niche that gets filled with every sort of half generation, so it allows for people to have that kind of, let them have crushes and imagine, you know, that thing of postering the wall with all the crushes that, that you have, like, and that can go on for as, as long as possible. Um, so, um, so in terms of um, uh, talking about that, that brings up the idea about um, technology and social media. And I am no expert on social media and technology, but I, what I and I think none of us are because it's all happening so fast. Um, and I think um, again, I think we try to put too much disparagement on social media and say, "Oh, social." There are positive things about these, but I think what's important as parents is that it's important for you to set limits and feel comfortable and feel comfortable saying you can have these things. The question that often comes up in this meeting is, can I have a cell phone? Should they have Facebook? Should they have Snapchat? Should they have, you know, dating apps? You know, no, that doesn't come. Um, uh, but um, OkCupid's okay, not good for your fifth grader, um, or Tinder. But, but, um, but they may, but they will want to have these other things. And my philosophy about it is that you have to decide as a family what your values are. Like, there's no right or wrong, you know, in terms of you, maybe but there's no absolute about having things or not. But I do think what's important is that they're not ready for that. They're really not, in terms of the maturity, they're not ready to manage these kinds of things. And every year we see that there's social bullying, there's someone, you know, they, they, they and it, it, it's, it's not because they're bad or mean that there's this mean kid, is that they're really not ready to handle it. They don't have the impulse control. Sort of back to their brain development, while their brains are developing at a rapid speed, the part of their brain that connects their impulses to their thinking aren't necessarily connected. Like, so by the time we get to our age, hopefully, that we may have an impulse where we can talk ourselves down. So those Bridges aren't fully established for a while. They're in the process of being formed. Um, so what I feel is important is for you to say to your children, you know, if you want to have email, you want to have text, you want to have any of these kinds of things, but I'm watching. And we have your passcodes. You can't have without passcodes. Um, and that if you set it up now in that way, that it's okay to be strict. And in fact, if your kids say you're being so mean and, you know, Sarah's mom doesn't do that, you're, you're right. You know, you're, you're, you've actually succeeded that um, we often don't want them to see us as mean, and that's, that's the problem that we can get into, and that sort of accelerates with adolescence. It's okay to be mean. It's okay to say, um, I'm having your passwords, or you can't have these things till maybe you're in seventh and eighth grade, or till you know, we feel that you're ready. Um, and they'll fight you and fight you and fight you and fight you. Um, same thing with you know, Xbox and Fortnite. Um, limits on all those things, if you do it now, it'll be a lot easier when they get older to, to set limits. Um, and I think that um, it's really important. The other thing that's important is no electronics in their bedrooms when they're it's sleeping. All phones get charged downstairs. Um, no sleeping with a phone. And I, I, I maybe sort of sound radical, but even in high school, there's no reason for a kid to have a phone in their bedroom. Absolutely not. There's no, what, what do they need a phone in their bedroom for? And it's okay to do that. There's no reason to have a phone at the dinner table. So at the restaurant. So I think the idea of getting a piece of electronics comes with a lot of responsibility. It's kind of like when we got cars, right? So we were, you know, you don't have a car till you're 16 or 17 to drive, and our parents would say, in order to have the keys to the car, you had to have certain responsibilities. I would apply those same lessons uh, to, to electronics. 
Don't ask me about setting up passwords and fake Instagrams and all that kind of stuff. Um, that, you know, that's stuff that's a, a little more um, challenging. Um, but I think that if you sort of let them know what your values are as you're introducing these things, I think that um, you, you'll, 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 you'll be in good stead later on. Um, social stress um, and how to manage those kinds of things. And I have a, just a couple more topics, um, and then I want to open it up for questions. Um, Again, I wouldn't take everything at face value. Um, your kids will come home, and they may come home with some big complaint of the day, or big event of the day, or someone who was mean to them, or something that happened. I would hit the pause button with them. The key thing is to listen. To listen, listen, listen. So if they come home with something that happened to them, I wouldn't jump on it right away. I would ask them, tell me what happened. Let's go over it. What did you do? Who was there? Who saw? Who did you go for help? Um, try and empower them to take care of their problems. You're there as a backup, not as a, the primary, you know, you're not like the, the missile defense system for your kids. I think what's important for them to learn how to, uh, you know, advocate for themselves and speak up for themselves. You have a wonderful group of teachers here in the fifth grade who are very experienced. It's a really, you know, phenomenally strong group of teachers. Um, and what I would do is if you're having questions or your child couldn't quite answer, because sometimes they come home with part of a story, you don't know what it is, you can always reach out to one of these teachers. Each one of them, um, I see Beth nodding, would be happy to discuss with you what, what, what's going on. Um, but what you can do in those moments for your children is model calmness. You know, they need us, so their sense of emotion regulation is still in, in process, and they're looking to us to model things. So if you listen to them, you're calm when you're hearing a story. You say, let's try, what are strategies we can try? I can call your teacher, you can talk to your teacher, you can go to Ms. Mello, you can do A, B, you can talk to your other friends. Ask them what they think that they'd like to do and try and come up with a strategy. That gets to me to how to, how to help them and to think about their altruistic side. So one thing that Foot does a really good job of is, is helping kids think about others. You know, this is very much about a community. Beth is talking about these groups of learners. It starts very early on. I'm always so impressed. Kids open the door for me. I don't know if you notice that too. Like they just sort of automatically when you walk in the building. Those things are really important um, and it makes them feel good about themselves. I want to talk about sort of their non-cognitive skills. Again, it appeals to, gets to where altruism is. Um, so often we're thinking about kids, okay, the ERBs is a great, I love following Beth's talk about ERBs because that gets to what kids are sort of the, um, um, you know, about achievement, about, and we definitely want our kids to achieve, but that's only half the battle, right? The other half of the battle with raising our kids is sort of their non-cognitive, their sort of uh, other parts of their intelligence and praising them for things that they do that are not just how high did you get on your math test, how, what did you get on that social studies test, you know, how did you do on your project, on your report card. Um, but looking at things like, were they taking responsibility? Do they have chores at home, and how well do they do those chores? Are they taking risks? Um, are they being a kind person? You know, are they advocating for themselves? Um, and, and I think one trait that I think, and, and uh, I spent a lot of time with high school kids because I also consult with at Choate, uh, Rosemary Hall, and I've been there a number of years. One thing I know that those teachers value a lot is kids who come to them for help. The kids who admit that they don't know something and that they, and I'm always encouraging the kids I see in high school, go to the teacher, ask for help. You don't know what's going on, um, or you're having some issue with a friend, or you're having some kind of issue, go talk to an advisor. And that kids at fifth grade have a hard time, even ninth grade have a hard time. And I see, I love the development I watched in ninth and twelfth grade as kids who are too shy and inhibited to ever tell, you know, I don't know the answer, you know, because there's such a person to know the answer. But to go, um, and, and if that starts early, like, so if your kid is having trouble in math, um, and struggling on a test, say, did you talk to the math teacher? Did you find out? And sort of encourage, and do you need my help? Do you want me to call ahead and let them know you're coming? Um, you know, 
find out where your child is, you know your child best, but sort of encourage them to, to ask for help. Um, so in the basic, you know, sort of classic sort of advice section of my talk, which is what I'll end with, um, um, nutrition, rest, exercise, mindfulness, meditation, all those kinds of things are the things I never lived in medical school, but I put a lot of value on, you know, based on where things are now. Um, they need to eat a healthy breakfast. Um, now some kids are not breakfast eaters, so that's okay. There's always at some, you know, 10%, 15% of kids, but they need to actually then eat a healthy lunch and dinner. So they may not eat, be good in the morning, um, but they need to eat well. Um, we also know that brain development is very much tied to exercise. So moving around, not playing Fortnite all day long, less screen time, being outside, being involved in group sports, engaged in things. It doesn't have to be, you know, something hard or fancy. Your kid doesn't have to be an athlete or play for a travel soccer team that's going to California over spring break, you know. Uh, they, you know, just, you know, going to the gym or taking a walk around the block. If you have a dog, make them walk the dog. Um, uh, sleep, really important. Um, we know that brain, you know, what happens at night is that all the crap that gets developed during the day, actually, it's, it's when the garbage team comes in. And, and if we don't get enough sleep, um, there's more buildup of, of, of toxic residue. Um, so, um, and in terms of nutrition, um, things like energy drinks, not good for you, soda, not good for you. I think this is a population sort of knows what's good and not good for you, junk food, bad for you. Like there's, you know, the, uh, we're basically the victim of the food industry, um, not to get political, um, but, um, but again, thinking about what's healthy um, in terms of what they're eating. Um, uh, so I just wanted to, um, I sort of, I'll end there and give time for, um, you know, questions. Um, oh, the last thing about, um, uh, uh, practical advice is family dinners. When they do um, studies that look at outcomes of children, the one factor that seems to come up over and over and over again is families that take time to have a family dinner as many times a week as possible, even with driving soccer carpools and piano lessons and you know Chinese lessons and you know all you know, three kids and four kids and running all around. Um, that and you don't have to cook a fancy meal. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't have to be gourmet, but it's a sitting down and talking about your day. Um, that's really important. So if I had sort of one piece of advice to give today is that it's really that, that it it's really comes down to everyone sitting down, talking about their day, taking a turn, sort of putting their phones away, parents included. Um, and I think that, um, you know, you put your kids in the, in the best place possible for um, doing well. Foot Podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K-9 located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.